it's time to reconsider the presidency of Barack Obama. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. It seems so long ago that Barack Obama was our president. It's like we're in a different world. The optimism of hope and change from his winning campaign of 2008 has been buried under a historically pervasive atmosphere of anger and hate across America. We are as culturally divided as America was at the time of the war against Southern independence. And there is real talk of another civil war, though it would be far more difficult to do that now that the state lines are not an easy divide. There's no question Trump did all he could to bring chaos and division to our country. But the legacy and lasting impact of our 44th president, what about that? What was Barack Obama's contribution to how we got where we are today? And where is that? With us today to talk about his new book titled, He Was Our Man in Washington, A History of the Obama Years, is historian Owen Symes. As a, thanks for being with us. And as a first question, I have to ask, Our Man in Washington, how did you come up with that title and whose man was he? Good question. So that quote comes from a uh, journalist who was recollecting a meeting that a bunch of financial executives had early on in Obama's administration. Uh, you know, he had just been elected, just gotten to the Oval Office. And he decided to meet with a bunch of, you know, bankers and financiers and uh, you know, kind of get the lay of the land with them. So they go into this meeting. They're very trepidatious. They don't really know what to expect from this young, you know, seemingly progressive president. And Obama tells them in no uncertain terms, I'm the only thing standing between you and the pitchforks. You know, I'm not here to take you down. I'm yeah. here to stabilize the economy. And so after the meeting, uh, a journalist is interviewing one of these financial executives, and he says, wow, you know, Obama, he's really our man in Washington. So I thought that was a, a very provocative title because, you know, not, not having read the book, a reader can kind of read into it whatever they want. You know, a conservative might say, oh, this is liberal hokum, or a liberal yeah. might say, oh, I think I might agree with that. And so I thought it was an interesting way to kind of hook a reader into like, okay, what's actually happening here? Uh, when in fact, my research indicated that Obama was very much more about the uh, the status quo than you might imagine yes. one way or the other. Yes, so it seems. And so I think, uh, you know, once people really consider what Barack Obama did or did not do, uh, status quo. It, the uh, the uh, economic elite was certainly not disappointed in his work. And Obama himself has written prolifically a lot of books, and there are a number of books about the man, Barack Obama. This is your first book. What what prompted you to do this? Well, your introduction kind of gave that away a little bit. So Donald Trump, more than anything else, you know, I uh, I graduated from Hillsdale College, which if anyone is from oh, Michigan, yeah. they know it's a conservative bastion, right? Sure but uh, even though the administration, uh, you know, I never liked the administration even when I was there and on more conservative end of things. But the, the professors were very thought-provoking, very critical thinkers and everything. So yeah. I, I exited college with, you know, interest in history, not very political at that point. You know, I worked for a few years, got married, things like that. 2016 comes along, and uh, it was kind of a shock. You know, even before the election, uh, while the primaries were going on, 
was very strange to see a reality TV star and failed businessman, uh, you know, come to the fore of the Republican Party, where the Democrats were kind of floundering with uh, what even back then seemed like a pretty weak nominee. You know, Clinton kind of got it by default, uh, like she was heir apparent rather than on any actual, from my perspective, any actual credentials um, or popularity. Um, So after the 2016 election and that upset, I thought, okay, well, you know, I have an interest in history. Where's a good place to start with trying to figure out what happened here? Well, the previous administration seemed like a logical place to start. And then as I researched more, I noticed that nobody was really talking about Obama anymore. Trump had, yeah. as he often does, sucked the oxygen out of the room. He's, he's very good at that, if nothing else. Um, and so I, I thought, well, maybe I could write a book about Obama since no one else seems to be doing it. Oh, interesting. And I, I think, you know, perhaps there's enough time uh, so that we can get a, a perspective from history. I, I will say, you know, it takes a little while to be able to do that. And there was a wonderful guest on the show, I can't remember which one, who said, we should think with history. And I think that's a really good way to go about looking at, at politics of the moment. Now, a long time ago, I had friends who were in Barack Obama's state Senate district. That was, of course, before he became U.S. Senator. And they told me back in the early 2000s, you got to hear this guy, Barack Obama, give a speech. A state senator at the time. So on their recommendation, I was able to go to one night at the 2004 Democratic National Convention in Boston. And I chose that night, the night he was the speaker. And yes, I was impressed. He inspired with vague, reassuring phrases like, there's not a blue America and a red America, there's one America. It was reassuring and comforting and aspirational. Such sentiments are really good for winning an election, but governing is an entirely different thing, as I'm sure you discovered. I, I recall that the strength of his candidacy in 2008 was that he was basically a blank slate. He spoke well. But nobody, I mean, Democrats of all stripes projected onto him what they wanted to see. For example, I remember seeing political buttons with the word Obama and the peace symbol. And you've done a lot of research into the man and the president from that work and what you learned. What did? What do you make of the hope and change theme and how it played out in his presidency? There's like two different... You know, being a good candidate is one thing, but being a good uh, person in government is something else entirely. So the hope and change thing, how did that play out in his presidency? Well, it's certainly an astute observation to note that winning a campaign is different than governing uh, once you've won. Uh, FDR found that to be the case because he had a very similar campaign in 1932. He seemed to be every man to everybody. Uh, No one was really sure what he was going to do once he was in office. And so whether consciously or not, Obama followed that model to a degree, which is very smart politics. You don't want to back yourself into a corner before you've even gotten uh, behind the desk sort of thing. Uh, But of course, even while he was uh, a newer politician, you know, like you said, he was in the state uh, government and then very, very briefly in the federal Senate, not even one full term. um, There were signs that he was not, as progressive as his rhetoric might have led one to believe. Mm. Um, For instance, he was a supporter of the coal industry in Illinois. Uh, Illinois, uh, people don't often remember this, but Illinois is a pretty, or at least had a pretty vibrant coal industry back when he was, uh, you know, active in politics. 
Um, and so even though he was talking about clean coal, you know, that's yeah. kind of a pipe dream. Uh, maybe he didn't realize that at the time. Maybe it was a little bit less scientifically uh, verified that clean coal is not really a thing. Mm. But he did uh, that. That kind of sours his environmentalist credentials a little bit. When he was criticizing the Bush administration, um, it was very notably more about Iraq than about the war on terror more generally. Uh-huh. Uh, in Obama, Obama, um, you know, he said that he'd be happy to give the federal government whatever tools it needed to fight the war on terror. There would just have to be, a, you know, a check and a balance here and there. Uh, there wasn't a lot of discussion about, hey, maybe fundamentally this isn't something we should be doing because this is a vast expansion of the military-industrial complex that's going to undermine whatever positive attributes we see in this country. Um, you know, you become the monster you think you're fighting. There was that wasn't his his kind of critique, and so when he comes into office. You know, he does a couple of very positive things. He tries to shut down Guantanamo Bay and the Republicans and some Democrats stop him. So that's not exactly his fault. He does issue executive orders banning torture uh, and um, things like that, although how, uh, you know, rigorously those were adhered to is up for debate and hard to, you know, kind of quantify because all this stuff is cloak and dagger. Um, And he honored the Bush era agreement with uh, Prime Minister Maliki to get out of Iraq. So he didn't escalate that uh, conflict anymore. So those are all relatively positive, all things considered. But then he substantially ramps up the fight in Afghanistan. And one thing I think sometimes liberals tend to forget about Afghanistan is that the heaviest fighting there happened under Obama. We had upwards of 100,000 troops there, additional coalition forces poured money into uh, the country to up their, um, you know, defense industries and their uh, defense forces and their police. And of course, that all ended up being for naught, as it turned out. So obviously under Biden, they fold in all of five minutes. Um, You know, we didn't learn the lesson of Vietnam that no amount of money is going to prop up a government if it doesn't have any indigenous support. Um, That's what the South Vietnamese government learned, unfortunately, whether you love or whether you love or hate the North Vietnamese communists, they had a very a large level of popular indigenous support. The South Vietnamese government did not. So the same thing with the Taliban. You know, there's they're very divisive. There's a lot to not like about them, obviously, but they had enough uh, cachet. Uh, especially as far as being the people that were, you know, kind of in a nationalistic way fighting the, uh, the external aggressor. Yes. Whereas the, the the coalition-backed government, they have a lot of foreign taint. You know, they're they're propped up by a, an American empire. There's a lot to not like there. So yeah. point being, it was kind of, uh, you know, you throw enough money at the problem, hopefully we'll solve it. Well, that didn't end up being the case. But that was an Obama-era policy. You know, he expanded the war on terror into Africa drastically increasing the amount of special operations missions that were going on there, the amount of troop training missions that went on there. Um, Obviously, Libya is the biggest example of that. He helped topple uh, the government of Muammar Gaddafi and love him or hate him. It had very serious consequences because some of the soldiers that Gaddafi employed went home to their country of Mali and fomented a civil war there and destabilized that whole, you know, multi-country block. Um, so you see inklings of these more warlike policies while Obama was, in, uh, you know, lower levels of government. But you're right. It was very easy to kind of miss that stuff and read what you want into yes. the candidate because of all that flowery rhetoric. Um, and that's not entirely the fault of the voter, obviously. But I do think that a historical perspective helps with these kinds of things because it helps us recognize 
the limitations and the inertias that come with being president. Like, for instance, mm. if Bernie Sanders had won the presidency, which would have been nice from my perspective, and I was a Sanders fan. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But even if he had won the presidency, he would have been forced to do some very evil things in service of American foreign policy, if only through the power of inertia. It's not like he could just pull out of every military base and get out of every conflict first day in office. You know, that would take decades probably to get done more than one presidential administration, surely. So he would have been forced to do things probably that he didn't like just because that's what the American presidency has become. Except at least Bernie Sanders and a few other what I consider traditional Democrats uh, actually learned the lessons of Vietnam. <laughs> you know, that, that if you don't have the hearts and minds of the local population, you ain't going to win. And as I agree, one thing about the Taliban, people may not have really liked the Taliban, but they weren't the American invaders. And they were the best organized against the American invaders. But we didn't learn that. So that I, I, I still can remember seeing that button, Obama and the peace symbol. Again, that was just projecting what we wanted to see on him. And, and we're talking about the reality of the Obama presidency with our guest today, Owen Symes, who's got a brand new book out. He was our man in Washington, a history of the Obama years. The Nobel Prize Committee awarded him the Peace Prize, way prematurely, it seems to me. That, too, seems to have been based on projection. Back in 1964, yes, I'm that old, before the Vietnam War escalated so dramatically, people voted for Lyndon Johnson over the hawkish Barry Goldwater, believing the Democrat was the peace candidate. Uh-huh. <laughs> in this perspective of war, I wonder how Obama's foreign and military policy compared with that of his predecessor, George W. Bush. They were of a similar kind, although the tactics were different. And it, those are differences that matter, but sometimes they don't matter enough or I think they're too overblown. So as I mentioned earlier, they were both interested in fighting the war on terror. Bush was much more gung-ho about it because that ended up being kind of the identity of his presidency. Um, and he talked very messianically about that in a very uncomfortable way, you know, talking about prophecies being fulfilled in the Middle East and things like that. He, there was a phone conversation between him and then uh, French President Jacques Chirac, where the French president was very taken aback with this kind of uh, prophecy-themed uh, discussion. It's like Bush thought he was the protagonist of Dune or something, uh, you know, Paul Atreides. Um, but Obama comes into office and his criticism Again, he did criticize the Bush administration for overreaching, um, especially in Iraq. But this was criticism of a more legalistic mind. So it's not so much that domestic surveillance is bad. It's just you guys did it illegally. So if we're going to do uh -huh. it, we have to do it the, the right way. <laughs> and Obama says in his memoirs, you know, hey, I didn't hate the Patriot Act. I thought it was there were some very necessary provisions in there. Uh, it was just, uh, you know, ab abused in certain ways, which coming from, a, again, a Hillsdalian perspective, when Obama ran in 2008, I thought he was a socialist. Um, and then you go and you actually read the, the memoirs, the policies, the history of it, and it was very much, uh, you know, a more conservative Democrat kind of criticism. You know, okay, the Republicans, they have some good ideas, but they took it too far. And so, uh, you know, you get uh, Obama's version of the war on terror, ratcheting up Afghanistan, ratcheting up Africa, you know, it, continuing to 
funnel uh, military equipment and capabilities to the American police, things like that. Yeah, and it seems like, uh, you know, Obama called the war in Afghanistan, unlike Iraq, he called that a good war. It wasn't going well. He had a, a surge as uh, Vietnam. There was the escalation. Uh, and so the war on terrorism, uh, is it, w politically, why did he think he really had to stick to that aggressive policy? You've talked about that a little bit, but why did he have to do that politically? So, uh, yeah, as I mentioned, there is that presidential inertia. You can't just turn around and reverse a policy on the first day. But on the other hand, you know, Obama, he's not a dumb guy, obviously. For sure. um, he's, an, he's an astute politician, and he understood, at least uh, in, the, in the grand scheme of things, one way to lose parts of the electorate is to be seen as weak on foreign policy. So I think he made a calculated decision mm. if he, you know, thinking to himself, if I want to prioritize any domestic reform, I have to kind of toe the line with foreign policy. So, and you, you see that with, for instance, uh, his secretary of defense when he came into office in 2009 was a holdover from the Bush administration, Robert Gates. And so, and uh, Gates actually criticized Obama in his memoirs uh, as, you know, he, Obama didn't come across to Gates as, uh, as committed as, Obama, as, as Bush had regarding the war in Afghanistan. And I think he's, that, that to me says, you know, Obama was willing to go along with these uh, policies, but they weren't his main priority. Uh, you know, he thought, okay, I have to pick my battles, which is a rational thing to do as a politician. But of course, what that ended up with is you have a, a continued expansion of uh, military and imperial adventure abroad. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the question then becomes, okay, was, was that trade-off worth it in terms of domestic reforms, you know, with especially Obamacare and the Recovery Act? And I, I argue in the book that's not the case. Um, but that was the calculus that Obama was making. You know, if I'm tough on foreign policy, the Republicans and more conservative Americans will give me some leeway domestically. And for, you know, related reasons, that ended up being an incorrect calculus. Oh, interesting. Must have been very interesting research that you did. How, tell us about that research and how long did it take for you? So I started researching this in 2017, and I was working full-time uh, as a call center supervisor. So I was doing this, you know, 15, 20 hours a week kind of thing. Uh -huh. After about a year of that, I had finished a rough draft of the war and terror section and a pretty detailed outline of the uh, the Great Recession. And by that point, uh, I was in a pretty good economic position. My wife had just started a job as a speech therapist. They make pretty decent money. Okay. So I took the opportunity quit my full-time job and devoted myself full-time to researching this. Yeah, it was a lucky break. So it was about a year full-time and a year part-time uh, doing the research. And then obviously uh, one of the downsides of researching so early on after an administration ends, uh, the archives aren't really set up. There's not a lot of infrastructure or you know existing scholarship that goes super deep. So I, I had to rely a lot on political memoirs, uh, you know, contemporaneous reportage, government documents, you know, like the, the federal government prints, uh, you know, a, a vast collection of basically mm. every public utterance of the president. They have a collection going back, I think, at least to like the 60s, if not earlier. And so I relied on that a lot for Obama's speeches and things like that. You know, one of the criticisms of a history that's so recent is, you know, it doesn't have like the bombshell archival stuff. But my project here was more to try and contextualize the Obama administration. This is stuff that I had no idea about, even as a historically, what I thought was a historically literate person going yeah. into this research. So I thought, well, if I don't know a lot of this background, 
surely a lot of other Americans don't either. And it, it behooves us, I think, as a population to be much more historically literate than we currently are. Boy, that is for sure. And I, I too, love history. And I, I find the more I read, the more I find out I don't know. And it just piques my curiosity even more. And on the subject of, of foreign policy and military policy, national security, we want we don't want to be attacked again. I mean, there's the specter of uh, 9-11. What about his use of drones and how that may have affected the will of the so-called terrorists who some, I mean, they really are sometimes, and thus American national security. How did his use of drones and policy like that in Africa, that place that uh, Trump called a rather dirty name, uh, how how did his use of drones and uh, his... uh, Aggressive policy or enthusiastic policy, shall we say, uh, affect the will of terrorists and thus American real national security. So Obama took the position that uh, you know the Bush administration they were over adventurous, they were over eager when they went into Iraq. You know they had too many boots on the ground. There were too many you know bad interactions with the locals and things like that. Too many casualties on all sides. So he looked to drones and special operations uh, missions as a way to continue the fight, pinpoint where the violence is going to to occur, um, and in that way, reduce American casualties and then hopefully reduce uh, indigenous casualties as well. Um, As it turns out, drones are not as precise as we would like them to be. So part of the reason for that is if you're drone striking someone in a more remote area or an area that doesn't have a big U.S. presence, like let's say Yemen, what you end up with is Uh, How do you get intelligence as to where to strike? Well, you have to use what they call signal intelligence, you know, so you you triangulate cell phone information, you know, okay, we think this cell phone signal is coming from a potential target. Let's try and, uh, you know, get more information on that. So they'll, uh, you know, they have ways to fake uh, a cell tower so that the guy's cell phone will ping off of a U.S. plane instead of off the actual domestic infrastructure of the country. They'll use things like that to try and pinpoint targets and, and what have you. But of course, that's imprecise. There's not a, a real way to verify that. You know, it's human intelligence is often much more reliable and, and useful mm, than, mm. than signal intelligence. Or it's like combined arms. You kind of want all of it so you can compare and contrast. You don't have to rely on one set of data. Um, and so what you end up with is, for instance, an Operation Haymaker, which was a, a military operation in 2014 in Afghanistan, upwards of 90% of the targets of these drone strikes were not the intended targets. Oh now that doesn't that doesn't mean that they were civilians. They could have been soldiers or terrorists or however the Pentagon wants to classify them. But they weren't the guys that they were, they were trying to kill, um, which tells you how imprecise these uh, these instruments might be. And of course, when you blow up civilians, yes. um, they don't tend to like that, no. and that <laughs> tends to produce more terrorists. And if you're relying on um, you know night raids and things like that. People don't like being kidnapped in the middle of the night. They don't like when their neighbors are kidnapped in the middle of the night, uh, you know, by these kinds of ghost people. Um, And so, you know, even though it probably didn't um, anger people as much as, say, the invasion, occupation and destruction of Iraq might have, that was a huge sore spot. Um, And it didn't do as much as, you know, the military bases that we still have in Saudi Arabia, Mm. where if people don't know, two of the holiest sites in Islam are located in Saudi Arabia. Maybe not the best PR move to have a whole bunch of uh, non-Muslim soldiers in and amongst those areas of the world. 
Um, but, you know, even with all that said, you know, you blow up a wedding, that's going to piss off a lot of people. Yeah. And so now, yeah. you know, you have stories of Pakistani children, you know, drawing uh, pictures of these demons in the sky kind of thing. They're afraid of the clear blue sky. That's going to scar the psyche of a people. So it might not be uh, quite as uh, wretched and degrading as an occupation, but it certainly is not winning hearts and minds. No. Um, you know, it's pissing off the Pakistanis to no end because we keep violating their sovereignty and their airspace. To, you know, when we took we took out uh, Osama bin Laden, we never told the Pakistanis we were going mm, in, mm. which militarily might have made sense. But, you know, especially if you're talking about a nuclear armed power, that's a very risky move just to get one guy uh, yep. for what is essentially a PR victory. You know, it's not like the guy was that militarily valuable at that point. So, Yeah, PR and not having boots on the ground, boy, it sure is a lot nicer for American TV stations not to have boots on the ground. And uh, we're just sending in the drones. You know, our, our boys are not uh, losing blood. Uh, but uh, for actual foreign policy, a little bit uh, questionable. And Obama was a first and so far only uh, president of color. And, but he remained determined to not be a president for black Americans, but for all Americans. And as a result of that, there was widespread disappointment in America's black communities with Obama. With the advantage of hindsight, could, could that have been different? Talk about that a little bit, please. Very interesting thought. So as, uh, as I keep coming back to, the, the presidency has its own limitations and a kind of bureaucratic institutional inertia. It's, it's difficult to imagine Obama having a successful presidency um, that also involved a lot of, of that kind of systemic change unless he wanted to go outside the normal parameters of American politics. That means, you know, consistent grassroots organizing, lots of low-level, uh, you know, local campaigns and things like that to really set a fire under, the, under these establishment politicians and get them to go along with the president's agenda. Now, once Obama got into office, he did not seem very willing to do that. You know, he put his, uh, his gigantic email list of, of supporters on hold. He tried to do, uh, you know, bill making as usual. That was one of the big criticisms of the Affordable Care Act was that it was just full of pork barrel spending and compromises. And there wasn't anything really like that new or revolutionary or radical in it. Um, Obama seemed much more willing to kind of kowtow, uh, you know, along the, uh, the well-trod um, halls of, of party politics versus anything new and fresh and, and invigorating. So unless he wanted to do something out of the box in that way, it's very hard to imagine him uh, doing any of that normal politicking and still uh, doing anything out of the ordinary for uh, communities of color and black people in particular. Um, and you're right that he wanted to come across as uh, a president for all Americans. Um, but of course, what that typically defaults to, as Joe Biden is kind of the er example of, is the white middle class um, and the business class, because those are the groups that have the most political power in this country. And so if you're just kind of coasting along towards the status quo, those are the groups that you typically end up favoring, even uh. if that's not your conscious decision to do so. Um, and so, you know, with his economic policies, it was much more about let's stabilize the financial system and get the economy going again the way it had been under Clinton. Because Obama's always looking back to the Clinton years as kind of halcyon, let's get back to that. Uh, a lot of his economic team came from the Clinton years. Mm. 
you know, things like that. So, I mean, his first uh, secretary of the treasury had been deeply involved in the uh, federal financial bureaucracy for, you know, a decade or more at that point. Um, so he was pretty ensconced in these existing problems and institutions. So, you know, when, a, when your solution to a problem is let's get the guys that caused the problem back in the saddle that's not exactly a uh, revolutionary talk. And, and when, when that, when those institutions have already caused so much harm to uh, minority populations, um, you know, predatory banking and subprime yes. loans that target, you know, inner city people and things like that. Um, you know, if you want to get that system back into coherence, you're not going to do very much for those marginalized populations as it turns out. Wow. Yes, yeah, so it seems putting those guys who created the problem back in power, and nowadays, you know, it's almost twenty twenty two already. Yikes! And uh, the the name, the the Clinton Democrats, the old uh, Democratic Leadership Conference, uh, corporate Democrats, uh, have not been good for the Democratic Party. Uh, now, now we can see that. I think you know it was safe. Uh, you're right. Uh, just kowtowing to the. Uh, to their business interests and not doing anything about that. But it, uh, you know, Will Rogers said so long ago, I'm not a member of any organized party. I'm a Democrat. Today we see the party quite divided between traditional liberalism, you know, FDR, uh, and Lyndon Johnson, aside from his war in Vietnam. So there's the traditional liberalism of the so-called progressive wing. And those more conservative members of Congress who appear to be in bed with the sources of corporate money. What was Obama's effect, do you think, on on the Democratic Party and the longer-term fortunes of our party? Interesting question. I think at the end of the day, what Obama tried to do as a political project was get us back to a working status quo. And because that project failed, it's only fueled uh, partisanship, radicalization, and, and political extremism, because people are grasping for solutions, because what has been done for 30 years or more is clearly not working anymore. And Obama is kind of the, the uh, apotheosis of that project, that neoliberal project that started in the 70s under Jimmy Carter, accelerated tremendously under Ronald Reagan, where you have deregulation, emphasis on um, markets as the solutions to all things. Yeah. You know, if we just organize everything we want as a market, then you know supply and demand will even out and it'll be an equilibrium and a perfect order and that'll be great. And that's obviously not how the world works. You know, Things like healthcare, those are not consumer goods, that there's the supply and demand, that there's no curve there for that. You know, My, my demand for a heart attack uh, cure is, I can't go shopping around for that. That is an inelastic good. <laughs> Um, the market is not ideal for allocating resources to cure my cancer or, um, you know, uh, birth my baby or things like that. So um, Obama is heir to that legacy, that legacy of NAFTA and deindustrialization right. and deregulation, um, that third way. And it turns out that that third way, the destination is uh, ruin. So, you know, Obama exits the Oval Office and hands it off to you know, uh, uh, not even a conservative, but just a, a you know, proto-fascist, uh, narcissistic firebrand um, in the mold of Mussolini, right? It's not about any any coherent political project for Trump. It's about popularity. Um, you know, people often say, well, at least Mussolini got the trains to run on time. Right. But that's pure, that's pure myth-making. That never happened. 
Italy under Mussolini was a disaster, a complete disaster, um, just a comically bad, badly run place. And, you know, obviously Trump mirrors that in many ways. But yes. one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons that we got to that point is uh, Democrats like Obama consistently try and get us back to that third way instead of actually helping the working people of this country by, oh, I don't know, strengthening unions, raising the minimum right. wage, getting us out of foreign wars. You can name any number of policies that all have their own limitations, but you combine them in a large enough pool and you're going to get some real progress. And I think that's what FDR understood for all of his faults. And he had many of them because all these politicians do, all these people do. Um, but he understood that there is a real, in 1932, there was a real groundswell of dissatisfaction among the people that actually produce the value of this country, the working people. Yes. And so the rich are going to have to give up some of their ill-gotten gains to kind of placate those masses. And that's how you get the New Deal. And then, of course, World War II comes along. Uh, all these businesses make money hand over fist from yes. government largesse. And then the business interests use all that money they gained from World War II to dismantle the New Deal over the next 50 years. Um, so it's, it's kind of that vicious cycle. Um, so hopefully we can find a way out of that. Maybe if we stop giving so much economic power to corporations and have more worker cooperatives or something like that, that might help. Um, but at any rate, the wealth has very clearly been redistributed back to the top. Yes. And people are getting really fed up with that and really fed up with politicians like Obama who talk a good talk, but at the end of the day, their policies reinforce that status quo. Uh, you know, the, the defense budgets went down a little bit in his yeah. first term, but then right back up in his second term, things like that. So Amazing, the priorities. And it's, it's so good to look at them because people, I think, you know, still have like, oh, he was a good guy. He was a smart guy, very articulate, very different from uh, the next, the, the president that followed him. But what was the reality? How did he really affect economic realities in America. And here we are in a second Gilded Age, which is probably even worse. And he did nothing to, to slow that down. For those who may have just tuned in, our guest today on Keeping Democracy Alive is Owen Symes, who's got a new book out. He was our man in Washington, the history of the Obama years. And of course, we've talked a bit about health care reform. That was Obama's signature achievement. It's been criticized for having the for-profit insurance industry at the table when it was being crafted in Washington. To accomplish anything, it's true. As, as you said, compromise is necessary. But my impression is he compromised on health care reform way too early. As you say, Obama refused to champion a truly working-class-friendly version of health care reform. What might that have been? And was there not another road he could have taken? I think one thing to keep in mind when we talk about political compromises. So, for instance, uh, Stephen King, the author, recently tweeted, you know, complaining about how the, the Democrats and the progressives were, um, you know, uh, kind of blowing up what was a workable compromise and asking for too much, you know. But one thing we have to recall with compromise is that you're starting, you have to start from a position before you can compromise on something. So Bernie Sanders started with $7 trillion over 10 years in the reconciliation bill, and he thought getting it down to $3.5 trillion was a worthy compromise. Um, similarly, with Obama and healthcare, if he had started out from the position of, I want 
Medicare for all, right. and I want uh, federally um, negotiated drug prices, and right. I want X, Y, Z, and then maybe back off a little right. bit. Something like In my opinion. Quote, yes. unquote, extreme. Yeah. But instead, what Obama did was he started from the position of, well, maybe we could have a public option, I guess, if people actually want it. I don't know. <laughs> and then the Senate, the Democrats in the Senate immediately cut that out. And so you're left with these in these uh, federally subsidized insurance exchanges and, uh, you know, this hot mess of uh, bronze, silver and gold uh, insurance plans and the individual mandate. And just this idea, like we mentioned a little bit earlier, that you somehow need a marketplace for this stuff. Um, and you see the um, Democrats that that thinking infects their um, that ideology infects their thinking, even in, for instance, the Supreme Court. So. A couple of years after Obamacare was passed, the, the Republicans obviously had spent years trying to destroy it, um, first through legislation, then through the courts, things like that. So in the Supreme Court, this came to a head in the Sebelius decision, where the Roberts Court upheld the um, the law overall, but shot down the individual mandate, um, or not the individual mandate, they shot down the Medicaid expansion, right? So under the original Obamacare law, Medicaid was... Um, you had every state had to expand it. And that was one of the great progressive victories of Obamacare was that Medicaid expansion. And the, the Supreme Court said that that was economic dragooning, that you couldn't do that, um, kind of strained reasoning, honestly. But the dissent coming from the, the liberal lion, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, yeah. even she said, you know, well, this is a good law. You know, we have to have a place at the table for these insurance companies. And it's like, why? Why do we need it? Like, there's nothing inherently American about private insurance uh, that's only about 100 years old. So it was strange even reading uh, what is supposed to be a, a liberal dissent of a conservative decision. Even she accepted at face value the idea that these economic vampires, these insurance companies that provide no service, they're not providing the health care. They don't understand the decisions that they're they're denying or approving. Um, you know, like I said, at the beginning of this, I, I worked at a call center. One of the main clients of that call center was a, was an insurance provider. They give like a couple of months, maybe 12 weeks, if that, training to these people. And they're just all PowerPoint presentations. They're not qualified, uh, you know, phone agents that are making these calls to approve or deny things. They're yeah. just doing it because the corporation tells them, deny all this stuff so we can make money. It's not about healthcare at all. No. So the question then becomes, what is this in industry's purpose for the public good? Why is it that Obamacare is subsidizing these markets in the first place? You know, we subsidize defense contractors because the theory goes right. uh, they do something good for the country. They give us weapons that we need, they tell us. Um, what does the insurance company do that this country is giving them so much money? So that's the kind of um, very irritating policy that comes out of Obamacare, um, you know, and that goes back to what was he willing to compromise on? Well, he was willing to compromise everything progressive, basically except the Medicaid expansion. Um, and even that has its own limitations. Medicaid doesn't cover a lot of stuff, et cetera, et cetera. The states get to determine yeah. what gets covered and who gets covered under Medicaid. So a lot of holes there as well. Um, and then, of course, you know, you get the the law in in effect. And one of the results of that law has been, you know, healthcare costs on the whole in the country haven't gone up that much, but individually, like, uh, you know, especially with deductibles and such, 
those have skyrocketed. Um, and like uh, what the employers put in to their um, insurance uh, plans has plummeted in relation to that. So what you get after 10 years of Obamacare um, is a lot more people are stuck with these high deductible plans that are borderline useless. You know, uh, oh, I have to pay a $10,000 deductible before right. you'll cover anything. And then after that, you're only going to cover 70% of my bills. Like what kind of catastrophic a million dollar hospital bill do I have to get before this is actually financially worth something? That's the kind of, of institution that Obamacare helped maintain. <laughs> it's not like all that stuff is Obamacare's fault. But when you keep giving insurance companies more power, and one thing Obamacare did was ensure that these corporations had more and more customers because you're forcing people to buy insurance to the individual mandate, that's probably not good when the industry in question provides nothing of actual value. And you see uh, the more conservative ideological underpinnings of Obamacare in the fact that a lot of this stuff comes from conservative sources. So the uh, the the healthcare marketplace was originally uh, a heritage foundation uh, alternative mm. to the early 1990s Clinton era healthcare reform package. Um, the the individual mandate comes from Romney Care in Massachusetts right. before Obama became elected. So he's he, like with foreign policy, you know, he's trying with foreign policy. He wanted to be muscular so that conservatives would give him leeway in domestic policy. Now here. He's trying to pull from Republican ideas to hopefully get bipartisan support. Obviously, that didn't work. Yeah. We can talk about why that might not have worked. But he was perfectly willing to do that instead of sticking to some kind of progressive principle and compromising from that position instead. And we, we can argue he might have been able to do that because he came into office with a, a sense of strength that a president has not had in a long time. Um, obviously, Trump barely won. Uh, Biden barely won. Clinton never actually achieved a popular victory, you know, because it was always a three ray, a three way race. Oh, right, um, right. Bush only technically won one of his terms, you know, because 2000 right. was stolen. Yes. Um, so it, it had been a while since we had a, a legitimately elected, very popular president. Obama could have used that momentum to do any number of things. And instead, he used it to prop up industries that were faltering and push through conservative health care legislation and expand the war on terror in various parts of the world. Wow, really interesting stuff. The, the insurance industry, I mean, they are, their goal, their job is to make money, period, end of story, nothing else. And we don't do it, but he, as you say, he, he kowtowed to them, and he could have used that political capital, perhaps. And to me, you know, as I look back, on the Obama presidency, I see, you know, he tried to be bipartisan. That didn't work. It didn't work. Sometimes you got to compromise, and sometimes you got to stand and fight before you compromise. That's, that's just my feeling, and I suspect you and I probably uh, agree on that. We're talking with Owen Symes, who's got a new book out. He was our man in Washington, our man in Washington, and now I'm beginning to see that title, why uh, it fits, A History of the Obama Years. And obviously, Obama was not a black leader. He, he was, in fact, at least partially African-American. So there's racism and white fright, and it affected his term in office. I wonder how Obama's race uh, influence on the rise, what was the 
infl- his race just by being not white, by being a person of color, how did it influence the Tea Party and the rise of Donald Trump? And I got a little more on this question. What is the logic of right-wing Americans who actually say Obama fed fuel into the fire of racism? A lot of people on the right blame Obama for racism. And in your words, you recognize that Trump, quote, Trump harnessed racism, sexism, and xenophobia, all of which tainted the legitimate economic anxiety brought on by neoliberal capitalism and left utterly unaddressed by Obama. Please say more on that. So I think when we talk about Obama's two terms in office and its relationship with racism, we have to look at the Clinton years because the Clinton years tell us that the Republicans pretty recently were willing to compromise on things that they liked. So they obviously they hated Clinton. They had a very, many of them had a very personal grievance with Clinton for whatever reason. But when Clinton turned rightward, especially in his second term, um, and did things like the uh, the 1994 crime bill, welfare, quote oh, unquote, terrible. reform, yes. um, things like that. Many Republicans voted with the Democrats, and you have a, a surprisingly bipartisan legacy in many respects. You know, d- uh, dismantling the last vestiges of the Glass-Steagall Act in, yes. in the year 2000—that's bipartisan all the way through. Um, Whereas with Obama, he tried to do similar things because, as we've mentioned, he's trying to pull from the Clinton playbook, and Republicans almost universally were against him. And I think the, the reason for that is twofold. You have this existing partisanship that's only getting worse. Uh, basically, since the Cold War has ended, American partisanship has just kind of blossomed, um, especially with Republicans who are increasingly unhinged in their rhetoric uh, and, and their, their vitriol for political opponents. Um, so you have that plus Obama's race. And that's not to say that all Republicans are racist or all Tea Partiers are racist, right. at least not consciously. But his race basically allowed Republicans and conservatives to uh, it, it, it personified the otherness of Obama and allowed them to read into him all their worst fears. You know, he's not normal looking. He's got a weird sounding name. And so you have conservatives who are accusing him of being, uh, whether it's Kenyan or Indonesian, you know, you have the whole birther conspiracy. Um, that didn't happen with John McCain, even though John McCain was born in the Panama Canal Zone. And it's not at all clear yeah. legally that he was a citizen that could run for president. Yeah. Um, there's a there's a, a legal gray area there that no one sought to look at because he's an old white man. So, yes. of course, he can run for president. Yes. Um, whereas, you know, Obama, that was not the case. Um, so you have you have his blackness, you have his weird name from these people's perspectives. Yes. So people were saying that he was Muslim and somehow that disqualified him from being president for some reason. I don't really understand that because this country, even though it's thoroughly Christian uh, in a lot of uncomfortable ways, uh, it wasn't actually founded on one religion or another. The yeah. founding fathers were not, uh, they were more deists, a lot of them, than anything else. Now, the next generation kind of threw that away and was very, very Christian, but it started out at least a little bit more agnostic in that way. Um, so it's rather strange for these conservatives who keep hearkening back to the founding generation to talk about, oh, he's a Muslim, that's bad. But anyways, you know, so they claim he's a Muslim, they claim he's foreign born, they claim he's a socialist. And in American yeah. politics, being a socialist or a communist is akin to being the devil himself, yes. um, which some people did accuse Obama of being the Antichrist, right? Uh- so you know, if you weren't as a as a conservative, if you weren't consciously racist, then your subconscious 
it, it kind of helped feed those fears. You know, he's already a little bit different. And so that, that difference allowed you to other him. He's a socialist. He's a Muslim. He's foreign born. He's black, you know, depending on how far you want to take that racism and that, uh, that xenophobia and that um, kind of white fear. So you take all that and you combine that with the existing partisanship and the existing, you know, that kind of Newt Gingrich, uh, Pat Buchanan style of republicanism. And what you get is an incredibly adamantine resistance to Obama's domestic policies. Um, even stuff that was similar to George W. Bush, Republicans didn't vote for as, as strongly, um, you know, bailing out various industries and what have you, because the, their, their strategy became, as Mitch McConnell often talks about, you know, anything Obama likes, we dislike, right. even if it's a Republican idea or a conservative idea. Um, and the exception to that is obviously the military budget, which uh, Obama ended up increasing. The Republicans went along with that. But even there, they were very quick to criticize the littlest thing. The Benghazi episode is, right. is kind of the the er example of that, you know, where a couple of Americans get tragically killed, you know, and Obama's administration can be blamed for misjudging the situation in Libya or causing this kind of catastrophe or what have you. But it wasn't some vast conspiracy that the Republicans kind of weave themselves into and you get six congressional investigations and, and that yep. kind of thing and waste millions of taxpayer dollars on this nonsense. Um, but you wouldn't get that kind of brouhaha if the Republicans hadn't already built up this persona of of other, you know, that looks like Barack Obama. So yes. uh, his race played heavily into that because it allowed Republicans who are already partisan to see that degree of otherness in this person. Um, and that, that torpedoed any hope his domestic agenda had, um, you know, as limited as his reforms would have been or were or ended up being, um, they were even more so because the Republicans were not willing to play ball at all. No, not at all. And, you know, it's, it, it's not funny, but it's, it's odd that I think a lot of people on the right thought, well, since he's a person of color, he must be a lefty. You know, he's got to be, uh, they just kind of assume that. And I, my, I think maybe he just uh, bent over backwards, as it were, to, to support them and to support the police community, which led, obviously, to huge mass incarceration on the, on the whole drug front. And it's a medical problem, and it seems like he was cozying up to the police community as one of the things that neoliberals do. And in 2008... Going into 2009, as, as people may remember, there was this financial meltdown. It was some scary stuff. He faced, when he went into office, one of the biggest economic crises the country has ever experienced. His supporters give him credit for turning the economy around, while his detractors say his recovery was one of the slowest in the country's history. And he bailed out the big banks and let those people who were at effect of their... The, the big banks bundling of low risk with extremely high risk loans, it left them high and dry. What, what about the seeming unfairness of that big bank bailout and what that did to the American economy as to, uh, you know, the lasting effects? Something really important to keep in mind with Obama's view of the economy and, and that of his administration writ large is they were really trying to get back to some kind of stability and what they thought was most necessary to do that was the reestablishment of confidence um, that would allow 
loans to be issued, credit to be issued, and and money to flow. Uh, you know, Timothy Geithner, his first Treasury Secretary, talks in his memoir about uh, you know the uh, the credit system, the the money system, is the circulatory system of of the economy. If if money's not flowing, nothing is going to happen. The 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 body economic is going to die, and so they viewed uh, themselves as kind of crisis fighters. Uh, you know, trying to fix this problem. And the way to do that for them was to get money flowing into the economy. Well, you know, instead of nationalizing the banks, you know, the, the banks know what they're doing, uh, probably. So let's just give them money and give them leeway and they'll they'll feel better about things. They had a little boo-boo right now, but they're going to feel better yeah. and then they'll start loaning again and the economy will get back on track. And it's actually very interesting to think about Obama's legacy in terms of what's happening right now, because the, the economy did bounce back, sort of, kind yeah. of. Uh, you know, wages were lower, uh, PTO benefits, things like that were lower. Uh, it was a lot of gig economy jobs, a lot of part-time jobs, um, you know, a lot of more precarious work. It wasn't like the economy bounced back and everyone got nine to five union jobs. Um, very much not the case. And so we're kind of seeing the fruition of that to a degree now with this uh, so-called great resignation, where not only are there strikes happening all over the country, mm-hmm. you know, at John Deere, uh, mm-hmm. most especially, but plenty of people, especially in the service industry, are are resigning in droves, partly because customers are unruly and unfair. Um, and it's just a toxic place to work. You know, bosses treat them like uh, garbage, uh, you know, don't give them consistent schedules or PTO or benefits, but also the pay is bad. Yes. You know, um, my wife used to work at uh, Sherwin-Williams selling paint, and that's actually, a, you might not think it, but there's a lot of knowledge that goes into what kind of paint you need for what kind of surface and how oh, to mix yeah. it, and what kind of color. It's a, it's a semi-specialized kind of knowledge. And, you know, we have this term in our, our economic thinking of unskilled labor, and that's just complete hogwash. You know, mm. if you're a homeowner, and you're in the Sherwin-Williams, you expect the worker there to know what they're talking about so they don't sell you deck paint for the side of your house or car paint for your deck. And that's all <laughs> stuff that no one's taught in school. You have to learn it on the job. It's, it's a specialized kind of knowledge. And yet somehow she was making $10 an hour with no PTO or vacation or, or benefits or anything. Um, and, it's, and yet somehow the American consumer has been conditioned to expect that these low-wage workers – are going to stick around long enough to have this specialized knowledge. You know, you walk into a target and you go to the electronics section and you expect the the teenager working there to know everything about computers and help you out. Well, maybe if target treated their employees well and had like a long-term career path and good pay and everything, uh, then that person might reasonably be expected to know something. But in point of fact, they have no training they have, uh, you know, the turnover is high and the pay is low and therefore the morale is low. So you're not going to get good service there. So, but this is the economy that Obama uh, inherited from Bill Clinton because NAFTA killed the, the yes. union jobs and he did nothing to alleviate those, those problems. He, in fact, continued that trajectory of terrible jobs, of wealth going to the top, yep. of, you know, corporate expansion and conglomeration, you know. Of all the banks that fell, they were small ones. The big banks gobbled up the little ones even more and concentrated that wealth in, in fewer and fewer institutions. So that's his economic legacy. Well, it, to twist uh, Woodrow Wilson's words, uh, it seems like Obama made the world safe for plutocracy. And right now, 
there's, as you mentioned, uh, there's a lot of uh, grumbling going on. You know, Amazon is, a lot of the workers there, they're, they're treated terribly. People don't think about that. But in so many different uh, uh, areas, there's a lot more unionization going on and, and sense of strike. And the president uh, is, is not showing any leadership on that. He or she never does. But that I think that's becoming a, more of a political reality. I may be wrong. I'm often wrong. But huh, I, I'm still hopeful. There's a lot more to discuss. But I did want to say, at the after you and I finish talking, Owen, I'm going to play part of Will I Am's Yes We Can song, which came out during the 08 campaign. It really, it raised hopes, many of which were dashed. All presidents face the judgment of history. It's probably too recent to be able to really judge, but from your research and your focus, Owen Symes, how do you think history will treat Barack Obama? I think history will judge him as a missed opportunity. Uh, you know, sometimes you get a Roman emperor, uh, a Commodus or someone who comes along on the cusp of a growing crisis um, and just misses the opportunity and just makes the situation worse. Uh, you know, so Marcus Aurelius dies. Uh, they had all these Germanic wars. The frontier was devolving into chaos and Commodus doesn't do enough to fix the problem. It gets worse. You have the third century crisis and, and Rome begins uh, another period of collapse. Similarly, I think with, uh, with America in the early 21st century, Obama comes into office. There are very clear problems. Um, there are uh, more radical solutions, less radical solutions. Yes. And he chooses neither. He chooses no solutions. Yeah. He chooses let's, let's try and get back to a status quo. We can't actually get back to because right? that's not possible. Um, you know, once the status quo is destroyed in some way or upset, you really can't get back to it. You have to yeah. find a new equilibrium. Um, and he, he didn't really find a way to do that. So, and you, what you end up with is dashed hopes, more political partisanship, more extremism, racism back on the forefront of things. Um, you, you mentioned earlier, you know, conservatives talk about, um, you know, Obama fomented racism. No, he just allowed uh, conservatives an opportunity uh, to talk about it again in a in a in a uh, veiled way. So missed opportunity is what I think most historians um, of ability are going to talk about with the Obama administration. Fascinating discussion. Owen Symes, his new book is uh, he was our man in Washington: History of the Obama Years, and it's put out by Zero Books. Thank you so much. It's a very very helpful uh, perspective, and uh, thanks for being with us on keeping democracy alive. Yeah, thanks for having me, Bert. was a creed written into the founding documents that declared the destiny of the nation. Yes, we can. It was whispered by slaves and abolitionists as they blazed the trail toward freedom. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. It was sung by immigrants as they struck out the distant shore of pioneers who pushed westward. Yes, we are keeping democracy alive. Twice a week, every week, 
subscribe. Don't miss a single one on the website, Apple Podcast, Spotify, or Stitcher.